Hi everyone and welcome. My name's Jan Orford and I'll be your host today. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss the provision of diabetes care by telehealth. In doing so, we hope to provide an overview of telehealth, its benefits and disadvantages, and ways to use this technology to make care more accessible. To help us to do that, I would like to introduce Laura Zimmerman, who will share her experiences with telehealth. Laura graduated from the University of Queensland with a Bachelor of Nursing degree in 2008 and accepted a clinical position at Queensland's largest hospital, the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, a world leader in healthcare, research and innovation. Laura went on to pursue postgraduate specialist qualifications in both chronic disease and diabetes education and management, graduating with a high distinction. Laura has established a leading edge private practice called McIntyre Health, offering exceptional healthcare and education throughout rural Queensland and New South Wales. Laura is also co-founder of Your Health Now with Dr. Meryn Tamai, a website designed to provide health education that can be accessed from anywhere in the world and a podcast series designed to empower you on your path to vitality, freedom and purpose. Laura is passionate about improving people's access to the very best in health and wellness services, regardless of where they live and work. So hello, Laura, and how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Great. As I mentioned, today we're going to be discussing telehealth, and I guess I have a a whole gamut of questions to start off with. And the first one was, what is telehealth, most importantly? Why is it important? How does telehealth work? Do you require any special infrastructure, software, technology or device? And finally, do patients participate from home or from a local clinic or hospital, please? Thanks, Jan. Those are great questions. And I think it's, you know, um, really important to start off and say that, you know, it's very well documented that the burden of chronic disease disproportionately affects our most vulnerable populations, particularly those who live in rural and remote Australia. So people who live in remote areas have a higher prevalence of diabetes uh, related risk factors when compared to others. And diabetes death and hospitalization rates are twice as high in remote areas than in major cities. So, you know, there's multiple factors that influence this. It can take hours to see the nearest GP, let alone a specialist. And sometimes the cost is too much for families, even with assistance. And keep in mind, this takes time away from work as well. So it's not just the cost of travel, it's the cost of, you know, um, it's cost of wages. And, you know, it's also really important, important to note that the socioeconomic disadvantage was associated with higher hospitalization and death rates from diabetes. So, you know, sometimes it's a situation that those who also work on the land can't take the time to leave their crop or their livestock, as so many livelihoods depend on, you know, the season success, thus making it, you know, that taking a precedence over their own health. A really important fact that is also important to be aware of is that Indigenous Australians are four times as likely than non-Indigenous Australians to not only have type 2 diabetes, but to suffer hospitalizations and, and die. You know, telehealth as a means of service delivery to manage chronic conditions such as diabetes has the potential to have a massive impact. And anecdotally, we're finding this already. So, you know, the easiest way to explain telehealth is that it refers to a delivery of health-related services and information via telecommunication technologies. And this term has largely been limited to one federal government-funded related service, and this is usually video conferencing between a specialist, a um, clinician, and you know a patient that meets a specific criteria. 
However, I and, and my colleagues advocate telehealth to be much broader than that. And globally, we're finding this as well. Sometimes I think it's easy to get caught up in the details and, you know, in the structure. Um, but going along with telehealth, you really don't need much more than the phone. It can be as simple as, you know, an audio call or, or FaceTime from phone to phone. You don't need much infrastructure, infrastructure really to get going. Um, but there are different mediums you can use. I actually just got off of a telehealth using a Pexit from Queensland um, Health. Um, you know, as I said, you can use FaceTime, video or audio, you can use Skype. My favorite is Zoom, um, text messages, emails, all these things are very useful um, platforms. But, you know, keeping in mind that every center will have, you know, their own requirements, but it is, you know, patients don't have to be in a clinic and they don't have to be at, you know, a rural hospital site. They can, they can definitely be from home and, and often you'll find that patients prefer this as well. But when you're looking at the different mediums and you're looking at what you're choosing, there can be one that's great, but super complicated and way outside um, what the center or the patient is is able to do. And it doesn't, you know, it can sometimes not working, end up not working in the end. So for me, you know, it's, it's simply what's easiest, what works at this time and, and how can I be most effective? Thanks for that, Laura. I guess one of the things that our listeners might be interested in hearing is how does a telehealth consultation differ from a face-to-face complex? consultation and what do you enjoy most about telehealth what do you find the most difficult and are there really any limitations to to a consult in this medium that's probably one of the um, the questions that I get asked most um, in many ways is exactly the same as a face-to-face consultation and in many ways it, it can be quite different what you don't have is you don't have that dexterity you don't have the benefit of using all of your senses and having that hands-on approach but it's easy enough to, to adapt so that's working with the systems around you um, teaching the patient themselves um, the, the, there's there's ways to get around it you just have to identify that need um, sometimes think outside the box and and sometimes it requires upskilling as well so ways that you can use a team around you so you can you know um, have you know the GP the practice nurse Aboriginal health worker, um, but the hospital nurse, you can ask them, you know, to, to feel for lumps on the belly or to upload those BGLs and, and to do those kind of examinations for you. And um, when you develop that trust and you develop that kind of working relationship, you can then incorporate that into, into your review. But I, I love telehealth. I love the flexibility and the reachability of it. I think that it's um, it's been life-changing for a number, number of my patients. My own father, you know, his uh, father-in-law, his, um, he had a very important review by, by a specialist via telehealth and it, um, ended up saving his life. So um, personally and professionally, I'm, I'm very much an advocate. Great. Thank you for that. Now, you mentioned in in earlier part of your presentation that Australians who live in rural and remote areas are, are often at higher risk of conditions like diabetes. And of course, they also have generally poorer access to health services when compared to people in major cities. So what are some of the ways that the rural and remote landscape impacts on health and, and patient management in that situation? No, I think that's also a really important question. And, you know, like you said, we discussed before the massive risk of conditions like diabetes uh, that people who live in rural and remote Australia have, you know, and what a lot of people don't know and don't realize is that food, you know, especially fruit and vegetables can cost up to or more, uh, 30% more expensive than um, than what the cost would be in, in major cities. 
And, you know, and if they can access these fruit and vegetables, are they fresh? You know, often, you know, when I go out there, they're almost um, almost near the point of rotten. Sometimes you have to look for mold and and things like that. So it's important to consider the distance that some people have even from these access points, uh, let alone the um, lack of access they have to travel there. So, you know, as um it's kind of a case study, you know, imagine that you you live in Tumla, which is an Aboriginal community on the border of Queensland, New South Wales. It's 45 degrees and you have no access to a car. The nearest access point for food is in Gundawindi, Queensland, and that's 25 kilometers away. You have three young children. Uh, you cannot walk and in this heat, you know, you can't walk in this heat and on these roads, even if you could, you have three children under the age of four. Your power often turns off and your food is unable to stay fresh. So to make sure you have food that can last, you know, what do you buy? Canned things, things that, that don't need to be refrigerated. And it's all good and well to say that everyone should have five serves of, you know, veg and two serves of fruit a day. But we have to understand that sometimes in these communities, especially our most vulnerable communities, that this simply might just not be possible. And it, if you can imagine how hard it can be to access fresh food, imagine how hard it can be to pay for fuel when you live an hour out of town and live on a pension. Sometimes this is not possible. And of course, the term non-compliant can be thrown around. And it's really important to understand the real barriers that, that people face. Lack of transport and distance from food access points aside, access to internet and mobile service can provide a major barrier to health and patient engagement. Calling a patient to see you know, how they're coming along or having patients in these rural remote areas have access to be able to get in touch with you can, can really be no easy task. Um, a number of my patients work on stations or just outside of these rural tone, uh, towns where there just simply isn't you know, any service. It's really how the other half lives, isn't it? Thank you for that uh, highlighting the, the issues for us, um, Laura. Mm -hmm. I wonder, have you had patients who you see via telehealth post-hospital discharge? And are there any other patients that might benefit from telehealth services that perhaps aren't already linked up to them? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's a fantastic way to provide follow-up advice and education and help the patient, you know, and not represent a hospital and really continue on that, that continuum of care. Um, I actually think that all patients can benefit from telehealth service and that this is really the way of the future, especially as our remote monitoring technology and programs advance. You know, I know just, just quietly that there are, you know, already existing, but some amazing research and development going on into this and that this is going to revolutionize how we can practice you know what label uh, at what level sorry we're able to practice that remotely so just another question that occurs to me how do you communicate with and refer to other health providers i mean do you have an established interdisciplinary network of providers that you use so I use a wide range of ways that, that I communicate and, and it's all tailored to each health professional. So basically I describe it as a learned relationship where I prefer to try a few things and to see what works best. Uh, there are a few classic letters which are always really useful to, to review and as much as possible I do try to use secure messaging uh, services such as medical objects or health link as a way to communicate these letters. But you know sometimes it's it's email that that works best and um, often we're on different schedules so it can it can be really useful just to get back to that email when you're able to. And things can, of course, be escalated as required. Uh, for urgent inquiries, I, I do prefer a phone call um, as face-to-face -face is usually not possible due to my uh, location and, and remoteness. Um, it's very hard to meet face-to-face -face with someone in Brisbane when you're out working in Kanamala. Um, scheduled uh, case conferences usually work really great as well, either on phone or via video conference. But in saying that, I do try to join in on telehealth um, as much as 
possible. Like I said before, I just joined in on a, um, I'm in Inglewood and I just joined in on a telehealth um, from the Gold Coast uh, University Hospital and I was able to link in with the endocrinologist there and be on the patient side here to help um, to, to communicate and to educate the patient after and make sure that the requests are followed through, et cetera. So speaking of that, the Gold Coast um, Hospital Telehealth Service, you know, has really been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Jenny Beggs is, is a guru and she has been excellent in uh, leading this team. It, it's also important to point out that that communication can sometimes be simply done by text. You know, hey, is it a good time to talk? Um, and then you get that five minutes between consults, which which can be really valuable to get um, to get those prompt answers. You know, in terms of referral and depending on the framework of the practice, you know, that the clinician practices in, um, this can all very much um vary in the, in the same way. So, um, you know, most of us require written referrals for our funding or Medicare purposes. So typically it's a classic letter outlining, you know, the needs of, of the patient and any pertinent investigations attached plus a medical history and a medication list. But also in saying that I'm very much an advocate of opportunistic, culturally appropriate care, you know, when required. If I'm, you know, working at an Aboriginal health service and the whole family comes in and, and hear that I hear that I'm all right and 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 that they all want to see me, I'll never say no. I'll just organize the, the referral later. And um, a lot of our funding bodies do um, have excellent uh, flexibility around this. And as a personal personal ethos, that's that's how I practice. Um, I think. And, you know, I think growing your network and establishing a rapport with providers around you and those who provide telehealth services really can't be valued enough. Uh, sometimes, and especially if you're new to an area, you just might not know that a service exists. You know, don't assume that it doesn't always ask first. And I also think, you know, on this note, it's really important that when uh, large service centers or specialists telehealthing into these rural and remote communities, that they are aware of what services are currently being provided. We often find that services are just assumed to not exist or in some cases assumed to be subpar just because of our distance from the CBD. I was actually just sitting in a conference um, this last weekend and where Kanamala was described as a remote location with no CDE and, and it was suggested that DEs who might service rural and remote areas like this might not be as experienced. So what the presenter did not know is that uh, in the last you know, five months, I have recently started, you know, attending this health service. Um, so I think I think on that note, you know, always ask first, you know, the um, the services can, can change, um, can come and can go. But but also that rural and remote is not less. Um, I think that a lot of us are, are very passionate about our work, uh, very dedicated to our work. And I, and I think that this is a really important point to remember. Thanks, Laura. I, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, can I just ask you what what is you've touched on some of this already? I think, but what is required to refer a patient to telehealth services? And also, what are the requirements for billing? Is the funding available to health professionals who would like to work in telehealth? So as I stated before, you know, it can just really take a simple referral to get the ball rolling. Often, though, patients who would be a good candidate are identified through face-to-face -face consults and telehealth is identified as a viable way to move forward, likely due to the, you know, to decreasing the burden of travel for the patient. Um, sometimes, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it can take one to two days to travel to see a specialist, keeping in mind of, you know, the cost of travel, accommodation, appointment costs 
petrol, time away from work, you know, this can go up into the thousands. And so for many, um, telehealth has been described as nothing but a blessing. Uh, depending on your program policy or funding requirements, it can vary in terms of um, if you can do a telehealth on initial or a follow-up consultation. Um, personally, in my in my own practice, I've done quite a number of initial visits through telehealth and it has really gone quite well. For in, in, in my practice, I provide a blend of telehealth and face-to-face -face services depending on the patient's need, as I do have the benefit of traveling to these rural and remote locations on either a monthly or a fortnightly basis. You know, for, for CDEs, it's different again for specialists, but for CDEs, we don't currently have any Medicare reimbursement for telehealth. I know that this is being reviewed by the Department of Health along with, you know, Medicare funding in general for, for our profession. Um, so we'll have to wait and, and see what happens in this space. Um, public health uh, services such as Queensland Health, New South Wales Health, all of them, um, they typically have uh, programs dedicated to this and are usually um, reimbursed in various ways and, and typically through their own activity-based funding. You know, and, and some CDEs, CDEs perform a fantastic you know, service through, um, through private fees. So I think that's an avenue that shouldn't be ignored as well. It's, it's a service that, that, that people value and they are um, willing to, you know, to pay the, the small costs for the appointment rather than the thousands that they could pay for travel. You know, and another really important avenue of funding that has been just absolutely, you know, um, so important to, to what I do is, is, you know, access of funding through, you know, our local PHNs. And, and I really have been pleasantly surprised and incredibly grateful for the PHNs that I've worked with and received funding from, you know, Western Queensland PHN and Darling Downs and Westmorton PHN are um, particularly innovative. Um, at the moment, um, I'm working with Western Queensland PHN and um, Louise Natush and Diabetes Queensland, and, and they have been... Um, especially fluid and, and innovative in, in, in their approach. And, um, you know, I think it's important to note too that Diabetes Queensland is an organization that is, is way ahead of the curve and has a really important patient first philosophy, um, personal diabetes uh, first philosophy that's really evident in all they do. So I subcontract to this, this program, the Visiting CDE Service. And, and I think uh, we as a whole, you know, have, an overwhelm have had an overwhelmingly positive response from our blend of face-to-face -face and telehealth services. What I think really sets this, this program apart, this program by Western Queensland PHN and Diabetes Queensland, um, is that they're happy to try new and innovative ideas, you know, evaluate what works. And, and really learn from this experience. And I think when, when you are fluid and when you are patient focused, uh, you're really then free and able to provide culturally appropriate care that really makes a difference and achieves real clinical results. And I, I think the take home for this is, is don't be afraid to think outside the box. Approach your PHN or a local health district or find a pr private funding model. Don't be afraid to have something not work. Just, just give it a go. Don't get bogged down in the details. You know, our patients desperately need the service and funding bodies are really responsive to this. Thanks for that, Laura. You've talked a lot about the process and I just wonder at the end of the day, have patients provided any feedback, either positive or negative, about the telehealth experience for you? Look, it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, um, most people are just incredibly grateful and and achieving the, the results and, and having better health. That um, They appreciate that they don't have to travel, take time off school, you know, or work, and they don't have to carry the same costs, you know, typically associated with, with specialized appointments. You know, and, and I think it's it's really important. And one of the first things I always tell my patients is, you know, it might take a little bit to get there, but, you know, you're not a diabetic. You're a person who has diabetes, and we're going to try not to let this 
affect your daily life more than it has to. And I think that that this freedom that that telehealth can provide, you know, it's it, it really, really is life changing. Thank you for that. Um, I, I guess the obvious question is also, have you ever encountered technical difficulties and how did you or do you overcome these difficulties when they occur? So yes, about an hour ago, <laughs> we, we couldn't get the video to work on the screen. Uh, so so we, we tried, we gave it a go and then, you know, eventually we just, you know, brought out the old speakerphone and did it from there. We were able to exchange readings and um, pathology and had the previous notes out from before. And, and we just went along with it. And it was still a very important outcome. We had some great, you know, um, dosing and insulin, you know, changes and, um, and the patient was still able to, to do it from, from their hometown. So, you know, everything's not smooth. And, and often, you know, these programs take time to develop just like any working relationship, just like any program would, you know, and you have to consider that, you know, sometimes it's, you know, the staff on the other end trying to balance the workload, you know, to be present for the consult, you know, the practice nurses and the reception are right running back and forth and making sure that they can be ready, you know, at this time. Um, it can be, you know, like I said, the computer program not working, you know, and, and a problem that we have out here, although we wish we had rain lately, is, is sometimes we can get pretty massive storms and our electricity and our internet can can be cut out. So sometimes that's an issue that, that we encounter. And and you know, once in a while someone decides that they um, that they prefer face-to-face -face interaction, and this is just fine too. And and this can be either, you know, a patient choice or this can be in a in acute scenarios where a face-to-face -face review is absolutely necessary and, and, and the clinician will, will identify this. And, you know, the most important thing is just not to give up, N not to, you know, just keep working, you know, towards ways to improve and to work with the patient and the team on the other side to see what we can do next time. You know, a lot of my best programs, you know, are, take years in the process and, you know, often, you know, month to month, you do see an improvement, but, but patients just can't be, can't be undervalued. And, um, you know, w w with all of this, with all the, you know, the ups and downs and things that work and things that don't, I, I actually, I can't name one person who, who wasn't satisfied with the consult. Well, that's it's uh, that's the most important thing at the end of the day, isn't it? So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Laura, for your time today. It's really been quite enlightening for me and hopefully for the listeners as well. That's all the questions that I've got for you today. But I guess before we conclude, I wonder if you have um, three take-home messages for our listeners regarding telehealth in general. So I think it's really important just just to give it a go if you haven't tried it previously. And, and if you have and it hasn't worked, don't, you know, just try again, be creative, be patient and be happy to try something and have it not work out. When I'm training clinicians, I always encourage them to fall forward. You know, uh, we, we don't we don't fail. We can we can learn from everything we do. So think outside the box. And it doesn't have to be at a health service on the other end. It can simply be by a phone call that the patient can receive in the comfort of their own home or even their work break. And so when you telehealth out to rural and remote communities, do some research or just ask the local health center what services are available. This can greatly assist you and your patient accessing appropriate services needed for holistic management. You know, and be creative with your funding. It is it's really there if you look for it. And I I you know personally a strategy that's worked for me as well as I've employed a consultant in the past to assist in grant writing and you know her work has been absolutely invaluable you know and last you know I'd like to encourage you to please look for your health now guide to empowered living through iTunes uh, to hear from myself and Dr. Marin Tomei covering a wide range of topics such as sexual health everything you want to ask a specialist about diabetes and professional burnout so go ahead and subscribe on iTunes now
Thanks, Laura. Thank you once again for your time. I really do appreciate it. It's been great to talk to you today. And I'm sure that this podcast has inspired our listeners to start thinking about the role of telehealth in, in, in at their particular health environments. And thank you to you, the listeners, for listening, taking the time to listen to this podcast. And until next time, goodbye. And thank you. Thank you.